Well, good morning once again. Please open with me in your copy of the scripture to Daniel chapter 5 as we continue on in this fascinating book. Today we'll see the end of the Babylonian regime. Recall that at the end of the last section, Nebuchadnezzar is restored to end a four-chapter narrative that selectively highlights a 43-year reign of an extremely powerful and able political negotiator, imperialist, and king. We read in verse 37 of chapter 4, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And then the very next sentence, because you recall that the chapter breaks don't exist uh, in, in the original Hebrew manuscripts. The very next sentence is, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. What, what, happened, to, what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? Who is this guy? How long has passed? I'm going to tell you some of those things for the sake of perspective, but I'm actually torn in doing so, and here's why. Those things are intentionally left out of this account with, for, for very specific reason. It's not an accident. There's no accident that Belshazzar's reign is not followed like the reign of, of Nebuchadnezzar. The king appears on the scene, and we will see, disappears from the scene equally quickly as the final snapshot of mighty Babylon. This is it. If you are writing a story about how a dynasty ended well, if there is such a thing, this would not be the last part you would write. This story right here. This would not be it. Not be your final snapshot. So much so that in many of the Babylonian records, there is no Belshazzar. Not surprising. But the Jews who stuck around, unlike the Babylonians, kept very meticulous records of such things and in fact were known for doing so. There is certainly no doubt that there was such a king and the Jews called him Belshazzar along with some, some other Babylonian documents. So what, what about Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 BC and he is succeeded by his son who is apparently assassinated by his brother-in-law who then reigns for a little bit. Then his son reigned in his place for about a month before he was deposed and one of the conspirators named Nabonidus came to the throne in 555 B.C. Nabonidus is the last king of Babylon. Nabonidus is the last king of Babylon. It's about seven years away from Nebuchadnezzar, the start of his rule, and he ruled until 539. Which means, depending on how long Nebuchadnezzar's restoration period lasted, we're jumping forward perhaps 30 years from the last time we saw Daniel. 30 years, perhaps more. Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus. How then 
Is he called the king? Is this some error in the biblical witness? No, it isn't. Unfortunately for the Babylonians, Nabonidus had a problem. He had a bit of a theological problem. You see, he was a passionate devotee of sin, the moon god. So much so that his passion uh, kind of made the clergy uncomfortable because if he was going to have his way, the chief top dog god of the Babylonians, Marduk, was going to be unseated at the top. And they said, we can't have that. And so what happened is, what happens if, you're in a, if, you, if you manage anyone in an organization who you can't fire, you know what you do? You find them a new role. Way in someone else's department. That is exactly what happens to Nabonidus. He gets reassigned in what most historians believe is a strategic relocation um, because the clergy just were not having it. It's as if they said, yeah, you could be a real influencer for the moon god. Way over there. And so for the last 10 years of his reign, Nabonidus, uh, Nabonidus spent the last 10 years of his reign 500 miles away from Babylon, from the capital city in a desert oasis. And Belshazzar, his son, was left to rule because you can't have the capital city and the palace unoccupied, right? That doesn't make any sense. So he left his son to rule, who was more pro-Mardukian, you might say, in his theology, and the clergy uh, were not going to revolt. And by the way, it is almost certain that something like this, uh, it's almost certain that, th that something like this is the correct account of things, because it explains why later in the story, the person who can interpret what's on the wall is third in the kingdom and not second. Okay? My dad is first. I'm second. Whoever can interpret this writing on the wall will be third uh, in the kingdom. So historically and in terms of according to how the text lays it out, it makes, it makes sense. Having said all this, the switch is abrupt. And it's as though the camera immediately pans to a, from a glorious restoration, the end of a redemption story like at the end of the movie where the music swells and the credits roll, right to an enormous dinner with a king getting wasted in front of a bunch of people. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, which doesn't even include the wives and concubines, which you might wonder why concubines would have been at such a royal dinner. Leads some people to speculate what else was going on at the dinner, that concubines would be there, but we won't speculate. He says... He drank wine in front of the thousand, but this is, this is uh, an overly simplistic understanding of this was that maybe he was at the head of the table or that anyone could see him. Uh, imagine though if I said that there was a big dance and we were all dancing and hopefully no one saw me dancing, but we were all dancing. And then I said there was someone who was dancing up in front of everyone. You would likely think and you would rightly conclude that they were trying to showcase their dancing ability and the same thing seems to be the case here. Belshazzar is not just someone who everyone happens to be able to see, but he is drinking in front of them. He's presented as the drunken frat house slob who's calling attention to how much he can put down. Notice this is confirmed by a careful reading of verse 2. Verse 2. 
It says, Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, what did he do after he had been drinking the wine? He had an idea. He had a really bad idea. Here was his idea. He commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. That the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. The shift again could not be more dramatic. You're supposed to feel it as a reader. Glorious restoration, Nebuchadnezzar, glory added, and it pans over to a king going, Hey, you know what would make this party better? Some of those Jewish holy cups. Bring them. Bring them out. Pour me strong. That's the picture. It's like, what on earth has happened? A move so bold that not even Nebuchadnezzar dared to do it. Says that the cups were brought out, no doubt with some people wondering what on earth is going on. And then it says in verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Maybe hard to believe after what we've seen, but this is the most explicit affront to God thus far in the book of Daniel. Using the holy vessels from the house of the Lord to engage in drunken idol worship. That was his idea. Because when you're a really God-hating sinful person and you get wasted, you come up with really, really bad ideas that are even worse than your regularly already bad ideas. And it's about that time, the room starts to spin, that Nebuchadnezzar notices something on the wall. And he was alarmed, like any drunk person is when they see something that they're not expecting. (laughs) Right? There he is. What does he see? Immediately, the fingers of a human hand, verse 5, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. There is a... There's a hand, it's, in the form, it's a human hand, and it's apparently the, the language seems to communicate there's a lampstand near it so that it can be seen clearly in this great hall. It's opposite the lampstand, and so they can see the writing. The king can, and so can everyone else. And it takes about one second from Belshazzar to go from Mr. Party Time to Mr. Pale Face, Limp Limbs, Knees Knocking. Then the king's color, verse 6, changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So what does he do? We've been following the narrative in Daniel. What is he going to do? He calls in all the folks. All the folks. That's who he calls in. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And what did he tell them? The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be, and then there it is, the third ruler in the kingdom. Promotion! 
The Babylonians are big about their promotions. Promotion. Everything seems to end with a promotion. But everyone comes in, and it says in verse 8 that all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And there's quite a bit of discussion about why these folks cannot even read the writing. Because it's right there on the wall. So why can't they read it? A whole host of discussion. One suggestion is that it was written in Phoenician, which Daniel would have been able to read, but they presumably would not have. Uh, some people think that it was written in a kind of ideogram, of a kind of a puzzle looking symbol thing that either contained the words cryptically or that symbolized them. Some think that because it was Aramaic, there weren't the vowel pointings written because those weren't added till later. And so because it is just the consonants that it was ambiguous what was up there, it could have meant a couple things. One suggestion is this, this divine holy script uh, that no one could read except Daniel. He had to do so supernaturally. Another suggestion is just that when they say they couldn't read or interpret it, it just means they couldn't make heads or tails of it, right? They just could not give a coherent reading or understanding of the text. That's why they couldn't read it, could not comprehend it, couldn't give a coherent. Which one is it? We frankly don't know. We don't know. Everyone in the literature, no matter what suggestion they prefer, admits it. We're, we're speculating. But regardless of the details, they can't make heads or tails of it. And, they, and their failure only takes the king to a different level, the next level of drunken bewilderment. So he's already alarmed. He's already perplexed. But then these guys can't give him the interpretation. They can't even read it. And he goes up to 11 here. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So now the picture is there's a great feast. Everyone is freaking out. What on earth have we just seen? Of course, not everyone is doing their sharpest thinking either. And so what's going to happen? For listening to this carefully... We're like, hmm, I wonder what the king will do next now that everyone has failed this. But as it turns out, we're about to meet a very compelling character because the king, because of his drunkenness and his alarm, he, he's not going to do anything. The king's not going to do anything. Someone else has to do something for him. Someone else has to actually do something for him. And that is the queen mother. That's the queen mother. In verse 10, we read that the queen mother bursts in. Uh, you likely have a superscript number in your translation of the text that takes you down to the bottom of the page and says, or queen mother. That is almost certainly a better understanding than the queen. One, because the king's wives are already mentioned as being a part of the banquet along with the concubines, and so presumably she is someone who is not part of that set, but also she is clearly depicted as someone who comes into the banquet and therefore was not there, and she's the most sober-minded person. Uh, clearly she is set apart in some particular way. A queen mother would be seen more like a, a matriarch or a grandmother who has been around, which will be one of the reasons that she knows of Daniel. She would have commanded great respect 
We read that the queen mother, verse 10, because of the words of the king and his lord, she, the word got to her of this, she came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, she gives the formal greeting, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. And then listen to what she says. There is a man in your kingdom. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Let me just point out, some of you are wondering, he does call Nebuchadnezzar his father. He said, Tyler, didn't he just call, didn't he just say Nabonidus was his father? Yes, they're both true. In the Hebrew idiom, and even in the ancient Near Eastern idiom, there is no word for like great, 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 great grandfather. It's no more problematic that Nebuchadnezzar is called his father here than the Jews called Abraham their father. Just how it works. Just a little bit different use case um, at the time. Uh, this would have been a prominent, Nebuchadnezzar would have figured prominently as the greatest king of Babylon, and so there would have been a no confusion there. He wasn't saying, no, oh, my dad's over in the oasis. He, the, the message would have been clear. It reads as descended from, not di- the direct descendant of, in the kind of nuclear family sense. The queen mother likely remembers Daniel from Nebuchadnezzar's reign. She was likely around. She's not just passing stories. She thinks and speaks very highly of him, and, and, and she points out that Nebuchadnezzar did something that obviously other kings, including Belshazzar, did not see fit to do, which is appoint him over all of the wise men of Babylon. At this point, apparently Daniel has slipped back into relative obscurity. Why was he set over those things? She continues, because, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. She says that he has all these abilities, but also makes something of a character comment, it seems. says that he had a great spirit about him in distinction from the spirit of gods that was in him. And she points out that this man's name was Daniel, and it is only the king who named him Belteshazzar. And she says, and this... Last part of the verse there. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So this woman is, is this is in, this woman is depicted incredibly here. She is the only sober-minded Babylonian depicted in this story. Someone who remembers the divine operation of this man. He she affirms his spirit as excellent. She dignifies him by calling him his Jewish name as opposed to his Babylonian name that the king only gave him, and then she tells the drunken king what to do. I like this woman. This woman means business. And really, a lot of commentators have pointed out, the whole thing depends on this woman doing this, because if not, the story would end here with a bunch of drunk people staring at a wall. Without her intervention, uh, intervention excuse me, that's where the story ends. And so what happens? What happens? Well, Daniel is brought in before the king, and 
The king follows the lead, wisely, of the sober-minded queen mother. And what we have to imagine was a very cringy acknowledgement of Daniel's Jewishness, by the way, calling him by his Jewish name, the holy vessels. And in fact, the picture is that he's called into the banquet hall. So they're all laid out on the table and everything. Daniel can see them. He says, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler, again, we see third ruler, in the kingdom. So he essentially rehashes the offer that he made to the wise men. He acknowledges some of Daniel's abilities. Hey, I heard that you can solve riddles. I heard that you can solve problems. Can you bring those talents to bear on this particular situation? And if you can, promotion. If you can, promotion. And by this time, we have to imagine, this is 30 years later. Daniel is tired of the old promotion and glory routine. Man, he's been down this path. He knows the promotion routine, and he's just not having any of it. He says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, verse 17, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Forget it. I don't, I don't care. I don't care about a purple robe. Save it for somebody else. I don't care about your promotions. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And Daniel starts by giving the king what he did not ask for. The king asked for an interpretation. Can you read and interpret this? Daniel starts by talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father. You want to read that? Your great, great grandfather, whatever kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until, and then we get the refrain from the last chapter. If you've been following along in the series, we get the refrain. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. He said, Nebuchadnezzar was glorious. He was mighty, and by all accounts, he was. The king that no one had seen a regime in the Middle East like Babylon. He said, You know where he ended up? 
He ended up out there eating green grass, drinking out of mud puddles, until he learned that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and he sets over them who he chooses. And we might think this, what a learning opportunity for Belshazzar, who may have no idea. Well, this is a time for him to, to learn from a historical example. It's so nice of Daniel to help educate him here. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And you, his son, verse 22, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of it. You knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And then he ties it to this direct act of sacrilege. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you have you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. There is a God who holds all of your ways in His hands. He holds your breath in His hands. And He looks at Him and says, you're, you're worshiping these things that don't move. They can't respond. They were fashioned by people. These are elements of the creation. And you don't even pay attention to the God who gives you breath and continues to allow your heart to beat. Reads eerily similar to a prophetic denunciation, actually, of Israel. This is what's happened in the past to instruct you. You have not listened. Then as a result, we get 24 and 25. Then from the presence, from his presence, excuse me, the hand was sent. That is God's presence. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mena, Mena, Tekel, and Parson. These words are essentially just three different kind of weights and measures. It'd be like, it'd be like saying something like... Uh, Ounces, pounds, tons, something like that. But not in that order. Yeah, ounces, tons, pounds, something like that. Doesn't create exactly a coherent message, which is why Daniel has to come interpret it. And it turns out that this is an extremely clever play on words. A super, super clever word play that this hand has written on the wall. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Minna, which is the smallest of those weights. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. The word minna sounds very similar to the Aramaic word numbered. It sounds like the Aramaic word numbered. Which is why he says the word and then says that God has numbered the days of your kingdom. Similarly, tekel, which, would re which represented half a shekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. 
the word tekel sounds like the Aramaic word for wade. Very, very clever. The last one is the most clever because it sounds like two things. Peres, which is the singular of parson, by the way, same word, it's the singular version of it. In the balance, excuse me, you have weighed in the balances and found wanting. Verse 28, Peteres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The word Peteres sounds very, very similar to the Aramaic, both for divided or split or halved and Persia. So he says, Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, and the Medo-Persian Empire that would succeed Babylon. That's what happened. That's the interpretation. You have been weighed, found wanting, you have been numbered, and your kingdom is divided and it is given to the Medes and the Persians. How does the king respond? Promotion. Of course, there it is. Folks, the Babylonian kings are a God-hating, idolatrous bunch. But you got to give credit where credit is due. When they say you're going to get a promotion, your career advancement is in safe hands. Okay, Daniel even said, I don't care about it. Keep it for yourself. Doesn't matter. Career advancement. Pr- promotion. No matter what you do, if you can just deliver, you will get promoted in this kingdom. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But you notice that Belshazzar wasn't particularly rattled by this. If you think back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue, Daniel said, well, there's going to become a kingdom after you, and there's going to come kingdoms after that. And he's like, "Eh, okay. There wasn't a time frame involved in that. Do you see a time frame here? Does it say when that's going to happen? There's no time frame there. At this point, you think, well, thanks for telling me that. Maybe we'll just go on with the party. But as it turns out, the time frame was incredibly short. We have to imagine that Daniel holds the record for the shortest tenure in a promoted role in the history of Babylon. It says, that very night, later in the evening, they're already having a feast and drinking, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. Verse 31 belongs to the next chapter. Verse 30 is the end of Babylon, right there. That's how it ends. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. The end. Over. No more commentary. Good night. And the largest, most magisterial, most powerful empire the region had ever known is flicked off the pages of history just like that. But there's something else here. There's something that makes this story even more absurd than it already seems. We have to remember that in, an, in order for an army to attack with a few, within a few hours of Daniel's proclamation, they would have had to already be there. There's no such thing as an attack chopper that flies in from hundreds of miles out and, and drops Delta Force on the roof of the palace. They were already there. History confirms this. They were having a party while the city was under siege. Babylon 
had enormously thick walls, enormously high walls. They had food and rations that would last for years and years and years by all accounts. The Euphrates River ran through the middle of it. They were going to have water. They didn't care. We're in this impenetrable fortress city. And so, let's just have a party. Some of you are wondering how they got in. It's ingenious. They actually built a canal that diverted the water from the Euphrates River to lower the water level so that troops could go in to the city. And they took it at night during a festival as the history has come down to us. The end. That's it. Who comes next? Will they, will they compare favorably to Nebuchadnezzar or not? Does Daniel get to keep his promotion? Does he go back into obscurity and have to be called out of darkness again? Of course, you'll have to come back next time, hear the next part of the story. But I want to focus in on a few things as a matter of application. And the first is just the stubbornness of sin. Perhaps the most pronounced criticism of Belshazzar is verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew about his glory. You knew about how that inflated his ego and pride. You knew he ended up eating green grass and drinking out of mud puddles. And yet, you didn't do anything. Hegel, some of you know, some of you know the philosopher Hegel, he once said that uh, the only thing we learn from history um, is that we have learned nothing from history. Now, that's a very cynical view. I don't believe it to be true. However, Belshazzar paradigmatically exudes a human vice that in some senses perhaps is common to us all. He is profoundly stubborn and simply will not learn. Verse 22 clarifies beyond a shadow of a doubt that he knows about Nebuchadnezzar's pride, knew what happened, knew of his restoration, and he just kept on. Knowledge for him was not the problem. Knowledge was not the problem. Proverbs 29.1, the, the wisdom of Proverbs 29.1 haunts this passage. That he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Beyond healing. This man has no excuse and knowledge is not his problem. The problem is that he has just chosen not to listen and learn from what has gone before him. For whatever reason, he doesn't care enough to change. And I want to ask you to consider... If you have seen, if you have heard or been exhorted in a particular direction towards good things, away from other things, and you've just chosen not to do anything about it, maybe you make a ton of excuses. You minimize the effects of what you're doing. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, doing this is not that important. Nothing terrible happened yesterday, and I didn't give up this pattern of saying, hey, I'm, you're acting like I'm going to get zapped by lightning or something. I didn't get zapped by lightning yesterday. 
My life didn't fall apart yesterday, and it probably won't happen today. Probably not tomorrow. Do you have a Proverbs 29.1 category? Broken beyond healing in a moment. Perhaps your entire life changing for the worse. Potentially forever because of your stubbornness and sin. Effects and consequences that can't be totally undone. Do you, do you have a pet sin that you're feeding little snacks in the dark? Keeping away from everyone when no one's looking? You've been told over and over and over by wise people to take a particular action, to turn away from sin in a particular way, not just a generic message for you. And you say, no, I'll turn from my sin in my own time frame, my own methods, how I want to on my own terms, on my own pace. And if anyone says anything to me about it, honestly, either it's just going to make me angry or make me just want to do it more. Broken beyond healing. I have seen many times, and likely so have you, people, many of whom love Jesus with many, many parts of their heart, but there is a part of their heart that is stubbornly hardened to holiness and to obedience, and they will not learn from examples in their own family, examples of people who have gone before them, the testimonies of others, and they are relentless in their stubbornness and pride. They don't think that you know, there, there will be consequences. They think, oh, I can just kind of keep this under control. And those people in an instant, I've seen it, in an instant, are all of a sudden going to prison on a DUI charge because they killed somebody. In an instant, lose every opportunity in their job field. In an instant, I've seen it, lose every single scholarship offer that they had. In an instant, lose their marriage. In an instant, ensure that they will never have a relationship with their children because of what they've done and because of what they're hiding. In an instant, end up chatting with a cop instead of a 17-year-old girl because porn wasn't cutting it anymore. In an instant, kicked out of their house because they... And when this happens, people always say, oh, just what rotten luck. Just such bad luck. No, wrong. That's not bad luck. No more rotten luck than a king who ignored every warning sign and thought he was better and thought he was above being touched by consequences and had a drunken party while his city was being sieged and got killed. That's not bad luck. That is the stubbornness of sin and the consequences. That's broken beyond healing. That's someone who will not listen, who will not learn. It's not some randomly detached misfortune that befell Belshazzar. Please do not let this exhortation just be one more witness against you as you continue in that sin that perhaps no one knows about except you. A pattern of quiet sin justified by every excuse. Repent. There is grace and cleansing in the person of Jesus Christ. But you must turn. You must repent. Clean. Not guilty. Justified. Adopted. Yes. But you must repent. 
regardless of whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, guess what? Repent. Repent of sin. You must turn. The second thing I want to point out is the idea of coming out of Babylon. I mentioned that this is the end of Babylon, but I told a little bit of a fib. Because if you remember from our first sermon, this actually isn't exactly the end of Babylon. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18 details the fall of Babylon. But it's in the future. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins." lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, For in a single hour, your judgment has come. In theology, Babylon is what we call a type. A type. It is something that analogously foreshadows a corresponding element that is further down in the redemptive story. And that is an intensified, more final expression of that thing. Babylon is cast in Revelation, as it always is cast in Scripture as the enemy of God's people. The final and complete opposers of God, who in Daniel's words, lift themselves up against the Lord of heaven, and who will, in in the end, be utterly destroyed in a single hour by the Lamb who was found worthy to open the skull. And the summons for us is clear. Verse 4 is the summons. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and therefore share in her plagues. Some of you may be here this morning thinking, 
I'm just going to kind of ride this Babylon thing out. Keep a better watch out for the, the Persians in my life, you know? It's time to come out. If you're an unbeliever here, I'm calling to you. It's time to come out. Time to come out of Babylon this morning. Friendship with the world is enmity with Jesus Christ. Babylon is a sinking ship. Babylon is a sinking ship, and there are no life vests on the SS Babylon. Everyone's going down. Hear the voice of Christ. It's time to come out. The Lamb has conquered, and He he calls to you this morning to come. Let's pray. God, we are again so thankful for a Savior who, instead of exalting Himself, humbled Himself, even to the point of death on a cross, so that He may in fact be exalted. God, I pray that you would cause all of us to thoughtfully consider pockets of our heart where we see the same stubborn pride of Belshazzar, where we don't want to learn. We justify it by saying we'll learn on our own time frame, in our own way, but we never do, and it never works, but we just keep going. Lord, I pray that you would present fresh opportunity to repent and embrace grace for us here this morning. Prepare our hearts, Lord, as we look at bread, look at juice, body and blood. A lamb who was slaughtered, but a lamb who was conquered. Remind us who we are in Jesus Christ. 